Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Altispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, one 855 noah That's one 855 4506 or send an email to live at com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. In the feedback segment, we start out with John from California. John writes in and says, hi, Noah, could you please take a minute and go through your day-to-day software and if there's a difference between the work and home please specify both and the reason for the differences here's a list to help you get started what distro are you using well i use a a combination of kubuntu and fedora now if it was just up to me i would probably just use fedora because i like red hat the company like the people that work there Um, but at the end of the day ubuntu continues to be the most popular linux base operating system and so if i'm going to go into an environment and suggest that somebody use Linux distro, it's probably going to be an Ubuntu base. And I just really like the KDE Plasma desktop environment, so I run KDE on both. As far as a terminal, I use both Terminator and console, depending on on um, on what I'm working on. Uh, for email client, I use Thunderbird. For a calendar, I don't have a personal calendar that I maintain, but for work, I use the built-in calendar functionality to Fastmail, so it's accessed through web UI. Uh, browser is Firefox. A video player, I watch either in VLC, I also use MPV as a backup. Every once in a while, VLC kind of craps out on me. But I like the controls, the on-screen controls of VLC a little bit better. For ripping movies, I use Make MKV for ripping the MKVs to use for things like Jellyfin. And if I'm taking an entire image of the disk, then I use Brasserio. And that allows me to get all of the extra features, all of the subtitles, all of the extra videos that are in there, and it preserves all of the menu structures of the DVD. And so it is essentially identical to maintaining the Blu-ray or keeping hold of the DVD. So I like it for that reason. For an MP3 player, music player, I love QMMP. It replicates the Winamp environment for me, and I really like the minimalistic view of it where it just kind of sits off to the side. Also functions uh, very well for somebody who really likes local media playback. Oftentimes, I am my work requires me to take down networks, right, and break internet connections. And so, if I'm doing that, obviously, I want don't want the tunes to die. That kills the mood. And so, QMMP with a, a large, healthy collection of local media on my laptop allows that to keep on trucking. Uh, for password managers, I use a combination of KeePass XC and Bitwarden. Bitwarden, I kind of treat as my public browsing password. I need to generate a password for a site that some somebody else manages that infrastructure, or I need to recall a password in that way. Uh, I use KeePass XC for things that never need to touch the internet, because my rationale on that is if I have a server, and that server maybe is connected to a network, why does the root password of that server ever need to even exist inside of a uh 
password manager that's connected to the internet. Why not just keep that entirely offline? Which also jives well when we go into clients where we're doing contracting, where it's not my network, it's a client's network. They just allow me the privilege of working for them in that environment. Then they keep track of their own KeePass XC database and I just have access to it. I take it. I add what I need to add or look up what I need to look and then render it back to them, give it back to them. And of course, they stay in possession of that. And I'm not A, responsible for the passwords in there. B, I'm not responsible for the security of it. And C, most importantly, nobody can get to it because it's offline. Really like that. For virtualization technology, I use VirtualBox for putzing around on either testing, uh, you know, if I have to test a piece of software on Windows or something like that, or if I need to spin up a distro and, and play with that. Anytime it goes into production, if it's used either both from a, like a server standpoint, we're going to virtualize a server, or if we're virtualizing desktop environments, which has become increasingly common, we've now gotten to the point that most of our clients when they go to revamp their network infrastructure, it usually includes a, a Dell R540 set up as a virtual host. That's virtualized with KVM and Libvirt. And then those machines, be it Linux or Windows machines, are virtualized and they're accessed remotely. And what's nice about that is a couple of things. First of all, you can virtualize the network appliance, which is great because that means that the entire office then exists on one server. And if it's a large enough office or a large enough environment, then typically you have a backup R540. And those QCOW2 files are then replicated between the two. So if the primary vhost dies, the backup vhost uh, remains. But if but th- that is just basically there for uh, for for permanent installations. Anytime I'm doing something on a desktop, it's usually done with VirtualBox. As far as audio editing software or recording, I use Audacity. Uh, for teleconference, I have both a Zoom account, but internally, obviously, we have our company instance of Element is hosted with EMS. And so because of that, they provide a built-in Jitsi widget. And so we use that for all of our internal teleconferencing stuff, as well as when we're doing stuff with clients, we'll send them a link, which is really nice because you just send the link off in an email, they click on it, and they join through a browser, don't have to install any software, don't have to accept any terms, they're just there. And I get it right natively accessed through my Element client, which I really like. As far as note-taking, I have a couple that I rotate through. On the business side, I use Sublime Text. On the personal side, I use EncryptPad or Joplin. I've just started using Joplin, and man, is that a sweet piece of software. It has a lot of the things I like about standard notes from the standpoint of tagging and formatting and those kinds of things, but I like the ability to organize into different notebooks. It gives me a little bit more granularity into organizing notes. I also like the fact that you don't really need to sync. There is import and export options, whereas standard notes, it can function offline. In fact, by default, it doesn't come signed in, and you either have to create an account or sign in. But Joplin clearly seems to be designed more along the lines of a note app that is designed to be used offline. Additionally, the user interface for Joplin, when it's full screen, looks like it takes advantage of all of the available desktop real estate. A lot of text editor standard notes and even sublime text to a, to a degree, it's just a really big space for typing, which is fine if you have a lot of text that you're going to bang out. But Joplin allows you to have uh, it, it's it's broken down a little bit more granular, and so you have uh, different areas of the window that allow you to incorporate functionality into the notes. And so, really enjoying that may actually replace uh, may actually end up replacing Sublime Text with Joplin some, at some point. As far as editing images, that's a little bit tricky because there are two kinds of images that I edit. So the first is if I'm actually working with pictures, photographs, things that I need to modify 
change a color, add something, those kinds of things. In that, I'm usually reaching for GIMP. Now, when it comes to graphic design, those are things like the logo for our website or when the web guy needs a updated banner or uh, business cards or letterhead or any of those kinds of graphic design type tasks, that I'm solidly in the Inkscape category. And uh, if, if I've not plugged Inkscape hard enough over the course of the show, I'll take an opportunity to do that again. We work with graphic designers from all all over the place, and they're using all sorts of different tools, and a lot of them aren't in the Linux or open source world, but we've never had an issue interfacing with them using Inkscape. I've always been able to send designs to them. They've always been able to send Adobe Illustrator designs back, and I've always been able to open them in Inkscape and and take advantage of the work that those people have done, even if it's in proprietary software. So Inkscape, just a fantastic piece of software. And as a person who doesn't have any formal training or background in graphic design, man, I can really take on those filters and extensions and make it do some powerful things. As far as chat clients, and he mentioned specifically an L- a matrix client. So for work, I use Element because it is where the majority of the development is happening and where a majority of the progress is. At home, though, I've been playing with Nico. I've tried NeoChat. I've tried, I forget the fractal, uh, for GNOME. Fractal, I keep getting signed out for some reason. Every time I close the app, I, I go to open it back up and it I'm signed out. And so that's kind of a non-starter. NeoChat has various issues of not been able to work out. But Nico works really, really well. My only gripe with Nico is I really wish I could get it to a point to where I could resize it to be a long vertical uh, chat window, much like Telegram and not a big, wide, fat one. Uh, and, and Nico gets me closer than any of the other clients that I've tried does, but still not perfect. Now, there's a new element client that's kind of on the block that I've been really enjoying, and it's called... I'm going to butcher this. Schlidly chat. Schlidly chat. It's the turtle one. Go into the Android uh, app store and, and search for the turtle one. Uh, S-C-H-I-L-D-I chat. But what I like about it is it is a fork of element. But instead of just being another copy of element, what it really is, is they've taken the code base and then they've stripped away a couple of features. So they stripped away things like the separation of rooms from direct chats. And obviously they don't have the alerts for unread messages, which is something I really appreciate from the work side. But when it comes to people like my sister or, or my, my mother, who both of which I want to be able to talk to and I want to stay in communication with. And of course I, you know, I, 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 I suggest that they get on the matrix ecosystem, but they want a very simple dumbed down chat UI. They don't want to be using things like Element. It's just, it's too much. There's too many levers and buttons and switches and it confuses people. And so Schlittily Chat, or however you pronounce it, is a slimmed down version of Element. But what I like about it, as opposed to things like Ditto Chat or Fluffy Chat, which are very much direct imitators of things like Telegram, WhatsApp, iMessage, so on and so forth. What's nice about Schlittily Chat is it follows the same code base as Element. And so the kind of features and functionality that you get in Element are just a foregone conclusion in the Turtle one. But the Turtle one has a more simplistic UI for people that maybe aren't familiar with Matrix or Element or don't have the passion for exploring technology like you or I might. And so I think it's a very powerful tool. And frankly, I honestly believe that if there was a little bit more time and effort spent into a generic uh, traditional messenger style uh, matrix client, I think matrix would pick up quite a bit in popularity. Uh, 
Uh, the number one complaint I hear from people when they say, they say, I didn't, I couldn't connect to the server. I didn't know how to connect to the server. I couldn't get this working. I couldn't get that working. I didn't know how to configure it. I, I got confused. I didn't understand. And so I, I dream of a day when we can have something like Ditto Chat and there's just two buttons, log in, sign up, and you, you tap on the button you want and it, it, it automatically creates an account at matrix.org or wherever it is. This is all coming, right? As we get towards Dendrite and as we get a server built into the mobile operating system, this will all come, but it's not there yet. And so the Turtle 1 is as close as we have right now. As far as text editors in the server, I'm, I'm a big fan of Vim. I started using Vim years ago, never figured out how to get out, and so I've been using it ever since. But in all seriousness, it's installed on, on literally every server by default. And so I never have to worry, is VI available? I know it's going to be there. And so does it take a little bit of getting used to the key commands? Sure. Is it insanely powerful once you do, and can you grep through text like nobody's business? Yes. Is it available on everything I've ever tried to use? Absolutely. And so use Vim for servers, Kate on the desktop, or oftentimes, it's, particularly if it's a text file that I'm going to be making a lot of changes to, or if I'm going to be making changes to over a long period of time. So for example, today we are out, we're doing a camera installation, and as part of that, we were reworking part of the network segment, and so that involved a ton of IP addresses, a ton of usernames and passwords. It's really easy to use Sublime Text as kind of a, a, a working dock to brain dump all of this stuff out, and then later split off all the passwords to key pass, split off all the IP addresses to the appropriate documentation place, that kind of thing. And for that, Sublime Text really, there's no, there's no other because Sublime Text allows you to, if the battery dies on the laptop, something happens, whatever, you're not going to lose any work. And one of the great features about Sublime Text, and it's just, it's a really fantastic editor. If you've not played with it, I highly suggest you do, do so. And as a PDF viewer, I use Ocular. And uh, apart from KDE, I would install Ocular even if I've gotten back to GNOME, just like with uh, the, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the KDE partition manager. I prefer GNOME disks. And so one of the things that I think is powerful about the Linux operating system that doesn't exist in macOS, Windows, so on and so forth, is when a tool comes out, no matter what the community behind it de developed, it doesn't matter if it came out on GNOME or KDE, you're able to use those tools uh, on alternative desktop environments. I think it's one of the things that's great is you pick the best from both worlds and you're able to do that. Now for a couple of direct questions. He says, what's your preferred install method? Deb, AUR, RPM, Flatpak, App Image, Snap. Well, uh, in order, it's this. Flatpaks, I think, are the, the, the most technically superior uh, packaging format and the one that I think has the, the broadest community support, uh, followed closely by App Image from the standpoint that App Image is is universal. And I, and I think that is really well appreciated. Now, when it comes to Snap, yes, there are some, there are some fundamental issues with the way that Snap works and the way that the Snap store is tied to Canonical and all of that. We've talked about that in the past. But one thing you have to give Canonical credit for is reaching out to all of these developers and reaching out to all of these organizations and saying, hey, would you please package for Snap? Or being available inside of chat rooms and, in, and and listening to current podcasts and those kinds of things. And as they hear, hey, this piece of software came out, make sure there's, that's available uh, as a Snap for people. And that kind of outreach and that kind of community involvement, I think, really reflects well on, on, on Snap packages. And I think it's one of the reasons that it's been as successful as it has. While we're at it, he says, what phones are in your pocket? What apps are on your phone? So my work phone is a Galaxy S10. Uh, I also, for work, carry an iPhone for testing our captive portals and 
testing our network functionality and those kinds of things and to demo software to clients. Oftentimes they will have an iPhone. And so if I can't show them how to install something or how to walk them through how to get the app working or analyze their, their camera footage, so on and so forth, I'd be out of a job. So uh, I carry those two with me in my backpack. My personal phone right now is a Nexus 6P with Lineage OS, uh, which I really like. In fact, I, I like it so much that my the reason I purchased a Galaxy S10 was because I, I started from what phones have support for Lineage, then of those, which phones have a headphone jack, of those, which ones have Type-C, what's the largest storage I can get, and I wound up with the S10. And so once I stop getting up proper updates from Android, that will get flashed with Lineage OS, and that just may become my, my new daily driver. I also, I continue to carry what I call a, a I don't know, a personal assistant, but it is a Sony Xperia. It's part of Sony's open devices line and it's flashed with Sailfish OS, which I continue to receive updates for. I still think has one of the best user interfaces, mobile interfaces I've ever used. The only downside is it's not truly and a completely open source operating system, right? And additionally, it only runs on very, very limited devices. And so because of that, I don't think there's a huge long-term in it for me, but right now it's the best option I can find. Now, interestingly enough, just this week I ordered a GPD Pocket. It's supposed to arrive on Thursday or Friday this week. I I wasn't going to pay full price for it, but I finally found a deal on eBay, less than $200. Woo, I'm cheap. But uh, I got one ordered, and one of the things I'm very excited for the GPD Pocket is I have absolutely nailed, down to a fine science, computing on a traditional desktop Linux operating system. What I continue to struggle with is fitting a 13-inch laptop and having it with me everywhere. And so with the GPD Pocket, I have a 7-inch device that presumably I can clip onto my my belt because I'm an IT guy and I can clip everything onto my belt. And my my hope is that I'll be able to use that to replace a lot of the functionality of the phone. Where I think it's going to fall short is notifications, right? Currently, there is no way that I'm aware of, other than leaving the, the, the computer powered on all the time, to hear notifications when it's in standby. It doesn't have that kind of wake up, go to sleep, uh, screen on, off, functionality kind of like your phone does uh, and it certainly doesn't have the battery life to do it that well and so i'm i'm looking uh i, I continue to look and i i, I still i have a pine phone i continue to play with it i have a lot of hope for mobile operating system we're going to talk about that as the show goes on there's a lot of innovation happening in this area and i occasionally i'll get an email from somebody and they'll say aren't you depressed with the, the state of mobile operating systems no actually i'm pleasantly surprised with with the progress that we're making we're just not quite there yet. But I have no doubt that when we get there, it will be largely thanks to companies like uh, Pine64 that will make that possible. And then he asks an open-ended question, what other gadgets are you currently or regularly using? Smartwatch, e-reader, tablet, so on and so forth. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I And I talked about this in our Christmas episode. I carry a backpack, which I have come to absolutely love. It's made by Briggs & Riley. And it is probably one of the best backpacks I've ever owned in my life. It comfortably fits two laptops. And then there's a large, wide center mouth of the backpack that allows me to put a lot of uh, a lot of things in any which way I want. And so what I've done is I carefully organize individual things into smaller compartments. And then I put those smaller compartments into that large mouth. And I use and I carry that backpack with me literally everywhere to the point that it becomes a, a, a source of people poking fun at me if I go to Linux conferences and stuff because no one's always got a, at least his laptop, probably his whole backpack there. But inside of that uh, wide mouth, I have a dual Type-C charger to charge both my cell phone and my laptop. I also have a Apple 95-watt Type-C brick 
as a backup charger for my laptop. I have a two terabyte external hard drive. I carry a small toolkit where I've got some screwdrivers, a pair of dikes, uh, some flash drives for breaking into Windows boxes and reflashing operating systems. I have a portable battery pack, which is capable of providing two full charges to my laptop and probably four or five charges to my cell phone. I also carry a Netgear Nighthawk mobile broadband router, which has a wired Ethernet jack for doing mobile broadcasts, as well as providing Wi-Fi to my laptop in case I don't have network somewhere. Care carry a pair of noise canceling headphones then i have a little emergency kit which carries a backup phone which is an s7 with uh and and a backup wallet with some cash in it so in the event that my primary wallet is lost or i'm somehow stranded i have a backup to at least getting by and uh, then one of the projects that i'm working on is carrying what I'm calling a minimum viable battle station or mvbs which is a thunderbolt docking station a small portable uh, 36 inch desk uh, that comes apart. So there's a little foldable stand and then a desktop tray that comes off the stand, 27 inch 2K monitor, a trackball, a full size keyboard, a desk mat, and then a mobile router that is running PFSense that has a site to site VPN back to our office. And so the idea here is between my backpack and MVBS, I should be able to set up at a client location very comfortably for a week or two and be able to work as if I was working out of my office. And so time will tell if all of this, uh, if, if all of that pa- pans out. But the idea is I just have a, a Pelican 1620. All the stuff fits into the Pelican 1620. I, I get on site, unpack all the stuff, assemble it, and I have a little mobile workstation complete with a little folding stool that I really like from Amazon for $9. So I'll have links for all of that for you guys in the show notes uh, available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Uh, one of my producers adds uh, Glock and Knife. Yes, I do. Uh, I, I'm a concealed carry permit holder. So we'll leave it at that. Our second email comes in from Jay, and Jay says, I was recently obsessing about decentralized technology. I stumbled onto this great site. It's called offlinefirst.org. That then led me to a world of Web3 software that can publish or run on IPFS. And so he gives a link to zerodata.app and unhosted.org. And this is really fascinating. I've not had a lot of time to dig in uh, to, to these software packages in depth, but the idea here is that there are UI conventions specifically for offline apps, and they're all apps that are designed from the standpoint that they're going to be used offline, and so they have distributed systems uh, and technology for handling all of that offline data, even if it's web native. And so some of the examples, Lightwrite, a distraction-free app designed for simple note-taking and writing. It works offline inside of your browser, keeps all of the data saved. And if you like your notes to be saved permanently and available on all your devices, then you have the option of using things like remote storage or, uh, or Dropbox or Google Drive and check out the widget on the top right to get that started. There's an emoji log, which has, which is a personal tracker that comes complete with emojis and diffuse a music player that connects to a cloud or distributed storage. So we'll have links again to all of those in the show notes. And, and over the next few months, I'll probably dig into some of those. I would like to learn more, but I really appreciate you writing those into the show. It gives me something to, uh, to dig into and play with. Our third email comes in from Octavio. Now, Octavio writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I'm a long-time listener and a fan from Mexico since even before episode one, as it has made the commute companion since. This is the first time I've written in. I was delighted to see the data networking being a central topic to recent episodes. Being a network engineer myself, I think we all should know at least a little bit about the infrastructure to make the most out of it. I have been increasingly noticed some confusion between ARP 
and Mac tables to the somewhat common among engineers, even in the industry. These names are easily confused, and it leads to some misunderstandings. I noticed it, too, in a recent episode, so maybe this makes for a good opportunity to contribute by helping clear things up. Hopefully, this is useful. MAC address tables are used by Ethernet switches to avoid working like old hubs, which would send all traffic everywhere. Instead, a switch should only send out traffic through the port which it needs to. So in other words, if you have five computers that are all plugged into a switch, the switch learns the MAC address of all five of those computers. And so when a packet comes to a particular IP address, instead of sending it out all of the ports on the switch, it sends it out only to the port to which it knows that MAC address resides. He continues, to do this, it keeps a MAC address table relating to Ethernet addresses with their outgoing ports. How does the switch build this table? It does so by literally snooping at incoming frames. No request response protocol is used. When a switch gets an incoming frame, it looks at the source address and then to the port that it came from, it adds that entry to its MAC address table. This is called MAC learning. On the other hand, in unrelated to switches, the ARP table is used by IP endpoints, such as computers or routers, but not switches. IP is not the final communication protocol. Ethernet usually is. So hosts must wrap their IP packets inside of Ethernet frames for there to be a communication. The Ethernet frames will need a destination address as well. ARP tables are used to figure out the destination Ethernet address for the final frame, given the original packet's target IP address. How do computers and routers build their ARP table? By using the ARP protocol, in which they ask everyone, who has this IP address? Once another host responds back, I do. Here's my Ethernet IP address. The first host associates both the IP address and the Ethernet address on its ARP table. Switches don't understand the ARP protocol itself. It's just another Ethernet frame to them. Also, switches don't need an ARP table in order to work. There are a couple of nuances which complicate this understanding further. First, managed switches are also hosts, and this is why an operator can connect them to have them configured. So managed switches will have an ARP table, but only for its host function, not for switching. Secondly, there are so-called layer 3 switches, which, for simplicity, are simultaneously switches and routers. So the switching function, so, excuse me, the switching function has a MAC table and the routing function as an ARP table. Thank you for the great content and the impressive commitment with the Linux and FOSS community. All the best, Octavio. So Octavio, thank you so much for writing in and clearing this up. This is a mistake I made myself. I learned something from this email. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to break this down for not only me, but everyone listening. We all learned something out of it. And uh, obviously, if you hear me say something on the air that's incorrect, then please write out to live at asknoahshow.com. Send me your email. Send me your feedback. Send me your questions. Even if we don't address it on the show, what may happen is if we get that topic in a number of times, we combine those topics into a main segment and then air that at a later date. And that's largely thanks to Steve Evans who organizes our email each week. And so we would thank you to, or we would encourage you to do that. Send an email to live at asknoahshow.com, either with a correction or uh, with your question, and we will address it on the show. Our pick of the week this week is Tauin Music. You can learn more at TauinMusicBox.rock. Now, the Tauin Music Box is a modern streamlined app that's packed with features. And an emphasis on playlists and direct file importing puts you in control of your music collection. Can you see why this is right up my alley? Simple drag and drop file importing. Excellent cue sheet for support. Support for mod tracker file playbook. 
network playback from Cole or Airsonic servers. They also support Last.fm, Listen Brains, and Mala Joe Scrobbling. MR MPRIS support for desktop integration. It supports broadcast background, so for live streaming. They also support gapless playback. This is something I wish I had in QMMP or knew where the option was to enable it in QMMP. Context Search Genius, Bandcamp, Rachel Music. They also support remote control from an Android app, a one-click archive to extract and import, and of course you can import and manage the playback of your Spotify library as well. So this app is available on Flathub, and you can learn more again at TowanMusicBox.rocks. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. I have a make good from last week. We're going to talk about Sonobus. This is a high quality network audio streaming software specifically designed for low latency bidirectional audio communication. So Sonobus is an easy to use application for streaming high quality, low latency peer to peer audio between devices over the internet or a local network. Now, I work in radio and in radio, we have these hardware boxes that are very expensive. They're four or $5,000 and the, we call them hardware codecs. And the idea is it's essentially a couple of devices in one. It is a very high quality microphone preamp. It is a very high quality microphone processor and it is a very high quality audio encoder that essentially encodes uh, an RTSP stream of low latency audio and then, and then creates a bi-directional link back to the studio. And so this is, if you've ever seen, guys do a remote broadcast out in a field, or if you've ever heard us when we're, we haven't done this in the last year or so because of COVID, but when we broadcast live from events like scale or self or Linux Fest Northwest, this is how we're doing it. We're using these, uh, these very high quality boxes. Well, uh, Sonobus is essentially taking that concept and turning it into software. So this works as a standalone application on Mac OS, windows, iOS, or Linux and is also available as an audio plugin. So you can use uh, an AU or a VST or A8X on macOS or Windows to use your desktop or DAW uh, on your mobile device. So when I got into this industry four or five years ago, we were using AACLD and AACHE. So that's the low latency version of AAC and the high efficiency version of AAC because that was the way to get the best quality audio at the lowest possible bandwidth. The hardware codecs that we use are fully capable of sending uncompressed PCM, but you need to have two to three megs consistently from your location back to the studio to make that work. Um, AAC LD and AAC HCE allowed us to do that with much less bandwidth, but almost indistinguishable. And I would challenge you guys to go back about half of the episodes we do of Ask Noah are, are recorded using this device. And I would encourage you to go back through the back catalog and listen and see if you can tell which ones are recorded remotely and which ones aren't. My guess is, unless I'm in a particularly noisy environment or I had to substitute a microphone, which has had happened a couple of times, you won't be able to tell because the audio is that good coming out of these boxes. Well, what I noticed in the last year or so, the new commercially available boxes uh, are switching their codecs from AACLD and AACHE to Opus. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's an open source codec that's built into Chrome. And one of these manufacturers actually has a commercially available box for about $2,000. And the pitch is you can allow your guests to connect easily from their web browser. Well, guess what they're doing? All they're doing is embedding this Opus codec inside of this little Linux server and allowing you to connect via your web browser. So how does this relate to Sonobus? Well, Sonobus has taken this concept and released it as open source software. So the new codecs, the latest revision of these things, expensive boxes are all using Opus, uh, turns out that Sonobus 
is built on Juice 6, which is a slightly – it's a slightly modified public fork and uses the AOO or Audio Over OSC, which also uses the Opus Codex. So you can get the same audio quality by just using a piece of open source software locally installed on your Linux desktop. Definitely want to check that out. You can learn more at sonobus.net. That's sonobus. .net. Our gadget of the week this week is the world's smallest 100 watt and 200 watt type C charger. This is absolutely going to make it into my bag. Now I've talked to you before about the RAV power and that's currently what I'm using and I absolutely love it. However, it tops out at 65 watts. So if you want to charge devices with higher power or if you want to be crazy like I am and power your ham radio off of your type C charger, then you're going to need a 100 watt or 200 watt type C charger. And where can you get one? Well, it's called the Omega and it's available right now as a pre-order on Indiegogo. It's a revolutionary 65-watt, 100-watt, and 200-watt credit card-sized charger. They advertise the ability to quickly charge four devices at the same time. The the pocket-sized Omega charger is the world's first 200-watt gallium nitrate uh, charger and is also the world's smallest 200-watt charger that is up to 66% smaller than traditional chargers. And anyone who's bought a 95-watt version of the Apple charger knows exactly how large that is. Now they have an early bird pricing for the 100 watt version. You can get uh you can get the 100 watt version at $65 which is 34% off uh the final price. Or you can get the 200 watt version which is a $100 uh and instead of 149 which again is is 32% off the final price. Uh, they're estimating, sh- their estimated shipping is in July of this month. It was originally scheduled to ship in February. So if you jumped on there and purchased it, I would say you have a decent shot of, uh, of actually getting one because the, the latest update is, is, is just this month. But I, th- this to me, there, I am, I am deeply tuned to what happens in the type C charging world because all of our technology coming out in the next few years is going to utilize this kind of charging technology. And so now that we've standardized on a power source, it does make sense to really understand what the options are out there. How can I get the smallest, most efficient version? And how can I power stuff on type C that nobody ever thought you might want to power on type C? Like I want to take my two meter radio and I want to be able to power that on a type C power cord. Technically the power is there. I should be able to do it. And so I am definitely pre-ordering one of these on Indiegogo. I don't typically uh, pre-purchase technology because I've gotten burned so many times. And by the time the thing gets here, it's out of date, but I'm definitely uh, going to be doing this one because where else can you get a 200 watt power supply? In the news, Red Hat is reaching out to new users and how better to do that by expanding their reach into schools and research institutions. So Red Hat has been doing this for a while now, but the, but, but their company is looking to offer a a, a, a low cost option for rel to non-degree granting entities. And now a much broader range of research and academic related organizations will have access to Red Hat's academic subscription program. And this continues what I think has been a pretty clear message and track record for Red Hat over the past few years or past few months, excuse me, where they have continued to say, okay, we are going to make sure that the projects that we're funding are in line with our business interests. But at the same time, we don't want to take away from what the what the community has and people that want to learn and use our product. In fact, we're going to do better. We're going to give them Red Hat 
proper. And so that's what you're seeing here, right? They're looking ahead to what people can expect and, and, and where the puck is going to be, so to speak. This is largely the same tactic that Apple used to get inside of schools, right? They offered a discount program. So schools would purchase Mac computers and put them all over their school. Uh, when people got to college, I knew many people that purchased a MacBook primarily because they got a, a discount when they went into the university bookstore. And I think this is really exciting that Red Hat does these kinds of things because it's going to do a couple of things. So first of all, it allows people to experiment with something that they might not ordinarily have experimented with. It's not just downloading an operating system off the internet. This is an organization that has the same kind of clout that Microsoft or Apple has. They're a major software vendor in the United States, and they build commercial-grade software that runs on all sorts of enterprise uh, companies in, in the enterprise. Now, Conan Kudo in the chat room says Red Hat is also opening this to primary and secondary schools, and he has a link in the Geek Lab, which you can join at geeklab.ninja. We'll have a link for you for that in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Now, this hits close to home because when I was uh, shortly out of college, I was doing some contract work with our local university and went into one of their departments, and they had some calculation software that was running. And so they purchased this new, like, $25,000 server, and said, we want to, we want to utilize this. And, but there's one problem. We don't actually know how to get the software loaded. And it came with this thing called Red Hat. What do we do? And I said, no problem. We can get that working. And so we got Red Hat loaded. We got the software loaded. And then it presented a web UI to the students so they could upload their, uh, their assignments. And then it would do all of the calculations and crunch it on this massive server and then spit back the results. And then they turned in their assignment. That is the kind of at that point when they installed Red Hat, they paid full price for Red Hat because they didn't really have another choice. Now, in that scenario, that was a foregone conclusion because it was paid for by a grant. But if you're a student and you're wanting to get into this high performance computing space or you're wanting to do some of these projects on your own and you don't have that opportunity because you don't have the funding model for it, you're just not going to get there less Red Hat make this stuff available to you. And yes, there are Red Hat clones, but you have to justify those decisions to the university. And increasingly, universities are cracking down on their IT infrastructure. Here in North Dakota, they've removed a lot of the servers, if not all of the servers, out of the local university and pushed them all up into the state headquarters. And so you want to run a server, you do it through them there. And when you can get actual support or when you can get a brand name behind it to say, hey, this is a reputable software manufacturer based in the United States, a $34 billion company, and they make the software that we want to use in here, the advantage, here are the technical advantages. First of all, the IT guy has probably at least heard of Red Hat, whereas he maybe not have heard, he may not have heard of Rocky Linux or Alma Linux or whatever, right? The other side of that is when the school wants to move forward with something or purchase a support contract or upgrade or do something more intense, there is a path to do that. There's a salesperson they can call. There's a technical support number that they can call. And Red Hat has the opportunity to then upsell their service and, and, and add value onto this thing that they're doing out of the, out of their generosity for these schools. So I'm really excited to see that Red Hat is, is offering this to, to, to schools. Snowden is back in the news. He is was working with The Guardian to – he released two articles. One was on July 18th. The other one came out today. But it is primarily focuses around a organization called the NSO Group, which releases a software called the Pegasus software. And the idea behind this Pegasus software is that it targets devices and allows governments – or, well, really, whoever has the Pegasus software – access 
to the device. And we'll have the report link. There's a report put out by amnesty.org. It's the forensic methodology report that really digs into how this stuff works. It's a little dry, but it was an interesting read. Uh, we'll have a link for it in the show notes if you really want to understand it fully. But the short version is this. Pegasus is a malware and it infects devices, Android, iPhone devices, and enables the operator of the tool to extract data from that device without the the user's knowledge or consent. And so in the past where we would have had to have, you know, the police or government agent or the actor find a way to get access to the device, either through the court system with warrants and those kinds of things. Now they don't have to do that. Now they, all they have to do is get you to click on a link or exploit some of the uh, exploits that exist in the platform itself. Once exploited, they have access to photos, emails, they can record calls, they can secretly activate the microphone. And so the leak that that came out that Snowden commented on contains a list of more than 50,000 phone numbers that are believed to be identified as people of interest by clients of NSO since 2016. Quote, the Guardian and its media partners will be revealing the identities of people whose numbers appeared on the list in the coming days. This includes hundreds of business executive, religious figures, academics, NGO employees, union officials, government officials, including cabinet ministers, presidents, and prime ministers. The disclosures began on Sunday with the revelation that, that a number of more than 180 journalists listed in the data include reporters, editors, executives at the Financial Times, CNN, the New York Times, France, 24, the Economist and the Associated Press and Reuters. The company sells only to military law enforcement and intelligence agencies in 40 unnamed countries, but says it rigorously vets those customers for human rights records before allowing them to use the spy tool, which if you read the list of countries that are on there, that's complete and total bunk. But it's a hacking tool. It's a commercialized hacking tool made by a company and sold to governments for the expressed purpose of breaking into people's devices. And so, you know, Pegasus, the software can be installed on a phone through a number of different vulnerabilities on apps built into the phone. So they can get you to click a link or they can, they can exploit vulnerabilities in the SMS app, in the WhatsApp, WhatsApp app, or in iMessage, which of course comes insta- pre-installed on every iPhone. And then once it's installed, they get access to SMS, email, WhatsApp chats, photos and videos. They can activate the mic, activate the camera, record your calls. They get access to GPS data, which in and of itself doesn't seem too terribly bad until you realize that you're, it's essentially a personal tracker. It gets access to the calendar, access to the contacts book. And the latest, they advertise that the latest advance of the NSO technologies enable it to it to, and I quote, penetrate phones with zero click attacks, which of course means that the user doesn't have to actually click on anything for the phone to become infected. Now, Claudio Guadini, who runs Amnesty International's security, secure, uh, security lab says he's identified evidence that NSO has been exploiting vulnerabilities in associated with iMessage, which comes, of course, installed on all iPhones and has been able to penetrate even the most up-to-date iPhones running the most up-to-date version of iOS. His team's forensic analysis discovered several successful and attempted Pegasus infections of phones recently as this month. Snowden said that the commercially available malware such as Pegasus is so powerful that ordinary people could, in effect, do nothing to stop it. When asked how people could protect themselves, he said, what can people do to protect themselves against nuclear weapons? There are simply certain industries, certain sectors for which there is no protection. And that's why we try to limit the proliferation of these technologies. We don't allow a commercial market nuclear weapons. He said that the only viable solution to the threat of commercial malware 
is the intentional moratorium on its sale. What the Pegasus Project reveals is the NSO group is really representative of new malware market. And this for-profit business, he says, there is no reason the NSO is doing this to not uh, – is the only reason this is doing this is not to save the world. It's to make money. Now, here's the deal. I agree with Edward Snowden from the standpoint of that it would be a great start if we could limit the sale of commercial malware or we could make it a less appealing option. But at the end of the day, anytime somebody, and I don't care what side you're on and I don't care what you're arguing for, anytime somebody tells me the answer is to put the genie back in the bottle, the answer is to bury your head in the sand and pretend that this stuff doesn't exist or can't be created, I have a hard time buying into that. And there, I'll be the first to say Edward Snowden knows more. He's forgotten more about security and technology than I'll know if I live to be 100. But at the same time, I have to ask the question, why would this stop? Why would we be able to convince a company not to make software? And even if you could convince a company not to make software, how could you ever believe that you would convince governments not to make this software if the possibility exists? So I respectfully submit to you that Part of the answer, maybe not completely the answer, but part of the answer here has to be to evaluate the platform itself and how to evaluate the platform security itself and allow individuals to secure themselves and distance themselves from platforms that have known vulnerabilities. At the end of the day, right, you uh, you go into malls, you go into restaurants, you go into police departments, you go into courthouses – I assume if you're if you haven't been living under a rock that you understand that you're being recorded, that there are cameras out there, that there are surveillance cameras there and they capture you as you go into these places. Right. And we all accept that because we're in a public space and we don't have any particular uh, expectation of privacy. And at the end of the day, those people own those spaces. And so if they want to record them, that's up to them. Right. And that goes for public entities. Right. If you have a police department. Even street cams to to an extent, your city wants to fund via tax dollars and put a camera up on a light post. Is there really anything you can or should do about that? When we step into our homes, when we step into our bedrooms, when we step into our private offices and we have an expectation of privacy there, that's where I believe we should get it. The problem with this kind of software, aside from the fact that it's commercially available, aside from the fact that it is highly lucrative and highly attractive to governments and individual actors is if you break one iPhone, you broke them all. If you break Android, you get access to 80% of the mobile mobile market share because that's how many people are running Android. The people, when they go to buy a phone, re- reality aside, all the little YouTube reviews on the latest gizmo gadget aside, the reality is the vast majority of people buy the cheapest Android device they can get. They throw a SIM card in there, they make calls, they send text messages, they install WhatsApp, and they call it a day. And so if that's your bar, if that's your target, it is unsurprising to me that so many people are able to be infected and they're able to accomplish this. I'm asking the question. Is it possible that if we remove the barriers of, hey, we know exactly what the software is going to be on everyone's phone, and instead every person had – not every person, but the people who care about this stuff – have administrative access to their phone, administrative access to their operating system, and they put just five minutes of thought into their – into the security of their devices, could we potentially solve this problem? The part of the issue is that the tech is growing faster than people are able to keep up, right? If you go and look at court cases, the way that these phones are being broken into largely is not by some massive vulnerability, not by some software that was loaded covertly by the government. Reality is 
the vast majority of them are broken in because they brute forced the, the four-digit pin that people put on there. And when you have a four-digit pin, you only got 10,000 uh, co- potential combinations, and so it's easy enough to brute force it. And, of course, you know, the answer we get back is, well, after on an Apple iPhone, after 10 tries, it locks and erases the devices. And, of course, they've long since figured out how to desolder the, the chip off of the phone, duplicate the memory, uh, the storage module, and they put it back in, they try 10, it burns, they reflash it back on there, try another 10, they essentially have unlimited tries. And and at the end of the day, when you have a four or six digit, uh, you know, pin that is with characters zero through nine, it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of computing power and time. And so when we rely on things like fingerprint and face ID, courts have ruled over and over again that your host that you can be forced to give up biometrics so what you would need to do is make it computationally expensive for them to break into to your device and that means something like a 24 uh, character passphrase that uh, you know that and, and force them to brute force the entire key space uh, and that would start to make it computationally expensive of course the problem with that is who's going to do that who's going to pull out their phone every time just give me five minutes here while i unlock my phone you know, it's not it's not practical. And so the technology is starting to get ahead of us to the point that you can't reliably expect to secure the device in your pocket. And I think that's overall what what Snowden is getting to. Um, but I, I, I think that there is hope on the horizon from the standpoint of alternative mobile operating systems are making progress and we're getting we're getting somewhere with that. And those Maybe the software in and of itself isn't the thing that saves us, but it's the community around that software and the understanding of that technology. Hey, I know what it means to encrypt my device because I encrypt my laptop. And when I encrypt my laptop, I didn't set a four-digit pin on my laptop. So when I flashed my Pine phone with the same operating system that I used on my laptop, I used a similar encryption key or the same the same process that I came up with in Christian for my laptop, that's what I did on my phone. Now we start to think about Android and iOS in that same light. Now it doesn't get around the fact that if you have iMessage installed and there's a vulnerability in iMessage that they can side, that they, they have the ability to load, use that vulnerability to load the software onto your phone and scrape all the stuff out. That is certainly an issue. But when you can't necessarily count on everyone having iMessage because who knows what operating system that person loaded onto their phone and the more secure they cared to be, then the more esoteric the operating system is, or at least the more security minded the operating system is. And that's where I think we start to see some real progress here. And it's not progress of we're burying our heads in the sand and saying, hey, don't look over here. Don't develop this. Don't do that. It's progress from the standpoint of, no, this is technically a superior way to secure a device. We actually own the device. We're not just renting it. Plasma 2107, this is a good segue, Plasma 2107 has been released, and first and foremost, they've made some shell improvements by making the shell more responsive and the performance of the top panel. They've also solved some issues regarding international numbers. So when dialing numbers saved without a country code, they're instead of trying to guess the country code, now they're using it uh, uh, based on the information from the cell tower. So they used to have like a settings thing and you'd go in there and say, hey, this is the country code. Now it's if you're roaming or if you go to a different country, it'll actually pull that from the cell phone tower. They've also fixed the issue, an issue that resulted in the dialer showing the wrong contact when receiving a call. And you can also use the dialer correctly with a hardware keyboard. Orca, the Plasma Mobile's QR reader, now allows you to choose between multiple available cameras when scanning barcodes, and it offers you the ability to import barcodes to transport tickets into the KDE itinerary app and provides helpful links for barcodes 
and containing international article numbers or ISBNs. The shared dialogue has been improved and now handles errors and sends a notification when the shared destination URL for services like Imager has a loading indicator and a title. As for the camera selection dialogue on the desktop, it won't fill up the entire screen anymore. Casts, their podcast apps, but with a K, of course, has been quite a busy month for Casts. The main feature implemented into Plasma Mobile's podcasting app this month include a implemented discover page, which allows you to search podcastindex.org for podcasts. Bart also added a feature to resume a podcast episode downloads, and the download page has been adopted to show downloading, partially downloaded, or completely downloaded categories. Swapnil reworked the playback speed settings, so clicking the speed button will now open an overlay list, and that list has a slower playback speed available. On the system running network manager, casts can now check whether a metered connection is in use. So, for example, if you're using an LTE connection on the Pine phone, uh, BART has introduced new settings that allow or disallow checking for podcast updates or downloading episodes or images on those metered connections. Swapnil also added highlighting to the currently selected page in the main menu, and this should make it easier to navigate. BART added a new settings to determine what happens when an episode is marked played. Episodes can be deleted immediately or the next time that casts starts. And finally, Swapnil added several tool tips that he also used hotkeys and space will provide for play and pause playback and will also skip to the next track. They invite you to join their matrix room, which is available at pound plasma mobile colon matrix.org. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Some exciting news. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it is the Steam Deck. Now, this is really fantastic. Steam is releasing a handheld PC. The short and skinny on this, it runs a four-core, eight-thread AMD APU. It's available with 64, 256, or 512 gigabytes of storage, which is not upgradable. It has a memory card slot. Prices start at $399 and go up to $649 for the device configured with 512 gigabytes of storage. It runs, are you ready for this? Arch with KDE. Steam in big picture mode, they're calling it Steam OS, but really underneath it's Arch with KDE. In their video, they said that their goal is to adapt every API and get every Windows game working before the deck launches this coming December. This is huge. I'm not a gamer, okay? I don't, th- this is not, ordinarily new gaming things wouldn't interest me, but there's a few things that stand out to me on this. First of all, I have continued down my five-year search for the perfect companion device. Like I said, earlier this week, I ordered a JPD Pocket. So it'll be kind of interesting, the timing of this and the timing of that. We'll see which one actually ends up working better as a companion device. But get this, right? It's that if you have a dedicated device, you're more likely to game, or at least I am, particularly somebody who's not a gamer. Additionally, I may not want to connect a gaming machine and have a dedicated gaming rig and a dedicated gaming place to do gaming, but you better believe I'd be happy to connect this little device into a little dock that's connected into my television in my living room or my kids' television in their room or share between them. I'm more likely to buy a device for my kids if they already have the games. We bought a Nintendo Switch for them for Christmas a few years ago, and they spent the first four hours just waiting for their games to download because they bought them, and they're so large, and also I'm sure every other kid was downloading Nintendo Switch games, right? But you already own the game, and you don't have to spend any money on it. All the games, your game library that you already have inside of your PC are now going to be available on this device. And the thing is, gamers, gaming developers are now going to be targeting this device, right? Now, that might happen through Proton or it might happen natively, but what can be said is 
there are going to be people that are going to have these portable gaming devices. And if you want to be the game developer that allows your game to run on, on the portable unit, then you have to be aware that that device is shipping stock arch with KDE and you want to target the best experience. This is the, one of the first truly commercially available Linux devices available. And I think that's exceptionally exciting. This is a company who gets it. And this is a company who is taking the hard, long work of the open source ecosystem and saying, you know what? Thanks for writing good graphic stacks. Thanks for writing a reliable operating system. Thanks for not having any vendor lock-in. Thanks for having a wide selection of desktop environments. Thanks for having a wide selection of distros. When Ubuntu didn't work out, we had another option there and we were able to jump in and use it. And this is Steam. This is Valve taking advantage of all of those features and benefits that exist in an open source Linux ecosystem and saying, you know what? We can build a product around that. We can sell a product around that. And we're going to do it at a really good price. We're going to get people on board. So if I wasn't a gamer before, I wasn't interested in gaming before, they have my full attention. Hey, all of the articles and references I use to build the show, you can find them at podcast.asknoahshow.com. This show is recorded live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. I hope you'll be able to join me next week as we record Ask Noah Show. You can find more at asknoahshow.com. See you next Tuesday.